Hello and welcome back to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. And today, in our 28th episode, the Macedonians are back in town, trying to figure out who will rule, what he'll rule, where, and for how long. Buckle your seatbelts, because the next two successors take us as close to this stabilization as the Eastern Mediterranean really gets before the long arm of the Romans reaches in and takes it all for itself. We're also going to be moving out of the 4th and into the 3rd century with these final lives of Season 4, and we'll have to rewind for Season 5 because we'll go way back to the beginning of the Roman Republic, and then by the end of Season 5, we will have woven the Greeks and the Romans together, with some of the lives even being contemporary Greeks and Romans. But let's focus on our current hero, or should we call him a villain, because Demetrius will conquer and rule in fits and starts, and Pyrrhus, the other successor of Alexander that he fights against, will win battles but never seem to conquer or rule much at all. In all these military conquests, though, we find the political and the personal virtues that we can apply in our own lives. Thanks again for the support of your listening ears. Be sure to tell others about the podcasts you enjoyed or learned a lot from. And send any and all questions about Plutarch as you read through him to tom at grammaticus.co. I really hope these are encouraging you to continue your journey through Plutarch and helping you see and remember more along the way. If you're enjoying these podcasts, the best way to let me know is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. I had about 60 in podcasts over the summer, and I'm hoping to get to 100 by Christmas. I'm up in the double digits already on Spotify because they had just added that feature. So thanks for that support. Big picture. We've got a handful of things to deal with here with Demetrius. He's got a good relationship with his father, and he's going to found a dynasty that lasts. There's only a couple other successors of Alexander who can make that claim. A lot of them die and leave nothing behind them. He has some natural virtues, and they're so great that when we see them corrupted, the natural vices are really ugly. And so that's kind of a warning. This is going to be a high highs and low lows sort of life. And it will even be high highs and low lows for the Athenians. So we already saw in the life of Phocian what the Athenians thought they were capable of and just how far they fell short of their own estimation. The Athenian exuberance here just knows no boundaries. And so we're going to see not just the vice of one man, but the vice of a political ally trying to court the power of these kings as they fight against each other. And Athens is a huge fan of Demetrius. Huge fan is still not strong enough a term. So we're going to see those grand plans that Demetrius lays and also the grand failures. In keeping with the fact that he's a big, loud, bold personality, we will watch the women of Demetrius's life march through. How can you have five different wives as well as a celebrated courtesan who was your, who accompanied you for most of the latter half of your life? Well, I guess Demetrius will answer that question for us with his life. And we'll see some sharp contrast between him and our next life. So Plutarch obviously pairs Demetrius with the Roman Mark Antony, also the same Mark Antony that Shakespeare writes the tragedy about, 
but he also contrasts him, right? So his similarity is with Mark Antony, but his contrast is Pyrrhus very sharply. And then we'll watch all of the successors of Alexander essentially unite against him, and Demetrius himself will be captured. While not quite the same tragedy as Eumenes, there is something to Demetrius's death that is a little sad and lonely. But first, Plutarch has to explain, why do we look at bad characters, right? He had spilled all that ink, if you go back to the life of Pericles, explaining to us why we looked at virtue. And it's because virtue is one of the few things that when we see it done well, we want to imitate it for ourselves. We don't say the same about the carpenter. We don't say the same about the pianist, right? We don't necessarily want to put the work in when we see a good pianist to become as good as she is. But when we see virtue, we think, I could do that. As a matter of fact, I should be doing that. So Plutarch has to explain, if that's what he told us in the life of Pericles, why now do we look at an evil man? Why do it? And his answer is, we contemplate good to imitate it, and we contemplate evil to avoid it. Furthermore, though, doctors have to study disease so that they can bring it back to equilibrium. Musicians have to study discord to better understand how to bring us back to harmony. And he then lists the greatest arts or skills. Right? Remember, an art or a skill is not just an organized body of knowledge. That's what the Greeks would call, the, the Romans would use the word science, and the Greeks would use the word episteme. But it's an art. It's a techne. So there is knowledge, but it has to be joined to experience. It has to hit the real, ro- the real world. And the rubber, to mix my analogies, needs to meet the road. But the greatest arts, he calls the greatest arts, not musicianship, not medicine, but temperance, justice, and wisdom. And you've got to wonder, why did he list three of the four cardinal virtues and not bravery? I think it's because he's trying in all of these lives to put bravery in the right context. Bravery at the service of the state, bravery at the service of your family is great. But bravery, as we shall see, at the service of your own appetites and lusts, is not that great. Because it's temperance, justice, and wisdom that help us to distinguish, Plutarch says, the good, the just, and the helpful. So the just is obviously related to justice. I would assume that wisdom is going to help us see the helpful, and temperance will help us choose the good. But I wonder if he had in mind another order there. So we'll more eagerly imitate the good if we don't sometimes neglect to look at blameworthy lives. And this is front and center. We have not had a life this bad since Alcibiades. So here we go. We're going to prove Plato right in this life that the greatest natures show us not only the greatest virtues, but also the greatest vices. And then we get a list of all of his vices. Both he and Mark Antony, his parallel, We're lustful, alcoholic, belligerent, great givers of gifts, wasteful, prideful, and their fortunes turned out similarly. For all their great successes, they saw many, many disasters. Demetrius did have the advantage of being born beautiful. He was the oldest son of Antigonus, who was now fully in charge of Macedonia after Alexander's death. He was uniquely handsome, though not as tall as his father. 
and his character inspired fear and favor in men. We should remember that his father was Antigonus Monophthalmos, the one who lost an eye in service to Philip and Alexander. So Demetrius has a lot to live up to. But Demetrius was very close with his father, devoted to his father naturally, Plutarch tells us. At one point, he returns from the hunt and sits down dressed just as he is with a full handful of spears in his hand. Just sits down right there, armed to the teeth, essentially. And Antigonus points out to the ambassadors, this is how much we trust each other. My son can sit right next to me in the throne room while I'm taking in ambassadors and I don't, I'm not afraid for my life. The other successors of Alexander don't show this level of restraint. We're going to see and hear a few of them, but you get ju- that's just a glimpse into the willingness to kill mothers and brothers and brothers-in-law and cousins-in-law and distant uncles. Plutarch says it was assumed as a basic tenet of geometry that you ought to kill anyone who stood in the way of your power. And so this familial closeness is notable for its exception not because it's normal amongst those in power. But Demetrius isn't just kind to his family members to any degree, right? He is willing to have a a broader view of that. Philanthropon. Philanthropon is what Plutarch calls it. And we still get the word philanthropy from this, right? It's a natural virtue, a natural kindness towards those who are just human. It might also be more towards those who are your social equal. But his father, Antigonus, has a dream. And we already see that they're close because he tells his son about his dream. And in the dream, he is sowing gold into a field as if gold is a seed. But he hears voices telling him that when this crop comes up, Mithridates will take it and sail off to the Black Sea. So... Antigonus, when he tells his son this, though, he says, don't tell Mithridates, I'm going to make you swear an oath of secrecy. And so Demetrius now can't break his oath to his father, but also wants to warn his friend Mithridates. And so at one point, they're having a conversation about something completely different. And Demetrius grabs a spear and writes in the sand, flee Mithridates, as in run for your life which Mithridates does. He gets the message. He doesn't need to know why Demetrius is close to the king and somehow he has earned the disfavor of the king. This is the Mithridates that will then find, found excuse me, a kingdom in Asia Minor, in central Anatolia, that will remain strong all the way down to Pompey, Pompey's time. And when we get to the life of Pompey, we'll watch how he defeats him and annexes his kingdom finally for the Roman dominion about 200 years after this point. So Demetrius has some big losses and some big wins. His first big loss is against Ptolemy of Egypt. He is utterly destroyed and he even loses his personal tent and his money. But Ptolemy sends it back to him, reminding the reminding Demetrius that these fellow generals and successors of Alexander, they're waging war for glory and power, not so that they can take everything from each other. And so he graciously gives Demetrius his personal belongings back. We'll see this sort of relationship 
While Plutarch respects it, mildly respects it, it's not the same thing as philan- philanthropos, right? It's not the same thing as an actual love of your fellow man because he's your fellow man. This is, okay, we were all in the same club and now we're trying to slice up this empire. So there's rules of engagement with fellow Greeks or fellow Macedonians, if you will. And Demetrius handles his first setback pretty well because Antigonus just allows him to try again. Now, I find this really weird because in contrast to some of Plutarch's other lives in the in the heyday of the Greek world, and even as recently as Phocian, a couple episodes back, you see that one of the primary differences between a strategos when he leads a polis and a king when he leads armies is that the king has a complete lack of care for the lives of his soldiers. Demetrius's setback is treated like an economic misfortune. Oh yeah, you lost some. Some of those numbers went into the red and you're not in the black anymore. Oh, it's too bad, right? But those are soldiers' lives that he was playing with. And one may argue, right? You could argue in response to that. Well, they're mercenaries and they knew what they were signing up for. And now there's becoming a professional military class that know like there's a big risk, big, big reward on the one side. You can sack a city and earn all the wealth you'll ever need to live well the rest of your life. But on the flip side, a lot of you will die. And you need to pick the right general too to make sure you're still alive 20 years from now. Uh, Although we'll see, they also flip-flop a lot. But I contrast them with Pericles and Phocian who both bragged about how few funerals they caused for the Athenians. They both were very proud of caring about the lives of their fellow Athenians and not wasting life unduly. So later, Demetrius actually wins a battle against Ptolemy and is able to repay the favor. So you see he's able to give back the the gifts and the general. He even captures one of Ptolemy's generals and the gold. But we start to see that Demetrius is a, we might call him a mercurial temperament, though that word and phrase was not yet associated with the vices we associate it with now. When someone's mercurial now, we mean they're flighty, they're hot, and then they're cold. Like the planet Mercury, they move quickly from one thing to another, or the planet Mercury doesn't even spin on its axis. It has one side that faces the sun most of the time and one side that faces away. So it's really, really hot, obviously, on one side and really super cold on the other with no atmosphere to protect it and being closer to the sun. So we would call him Mercurial, but Plutarch wants to compare him to Dionysus, terrible as Dionysus, so able to have fun, as only the god of wine can, but also still a god able to destroy. So speaking of Dionysus, he heads out towards Babylon because Seleucus, who had ruled under or had been a general under Ptolemy is now rising and basically carving out his own empire, and he starts from Babylon, but he has to trek east to make sure to get as far as India to kind of reconquer all of these tribes and remind them, okay, Alexander conquered you. Now that Seleucus reconquers you, we're keeping these as satrapies, like you're not becoming independent kingdoms. And Demetrius uses that as an opportunity to roll into Babylon and sack it. But Plutarch tells him, or tells us, he acted more like a pirate 
And so because he rolls in, sacks it, and leaves, that actually solidifies Seleucus's power because Seleucus wants to rule. He does not want to just take everything nice that Babylon has. He wants to rule it and make it the center of his beautiful empire. But with all the money that he gets from his Babylonian piracy, we could call it, he turns towards Greece and Macedon, which was really the center, is the center of Antigonus, his father's power. And they've decided, Antigonus and Demetrius decided that they're going to free the Greeks. They're going to find that the goodwill of the people is a better way to convince the Greeks to be on their side than to conquer them. Because Cassander and Ptolemy have united and want to just reconquer the Greeks, starting with the major cities that are usually reconquered, Thebes, Athens, Corinth, and we'll get we'll see Sparta a little bit later, especially in the life of Pyrrhus. But those big poleis are usually the ones resisting and usually the ones that they want to call down revenge upon. So there's another Demetrius at this time in charge of Athens, but he has allied himself with Cassander. And so this is going to be a Demetrius versus a Demetrius. And Demetrius gets this giant navy together, 250 ships. And when it comes over the horizon, almost every Athenian assumes that Ptolemy has put together this navy and they're making ready at the port of the Piraeus as if an ally is arriving. It only becomes clear as the ships roll into the port that this is not Ptolemy at all. And Demetrius sends a herald up into the city to announce that he will clear out the garrison and set Athens free. Most men don't want to fight. Like This is picking one king against the other. Demetrius leaves because he's afraid of the Athenian people and how they're going to react. And the big Demetrius, King Demetrius, we could call him, allows Demetrius the Falerian to have an escort to leave. And then Demetrius sets a siege around Munichia to rid it of Cassander's garrison. So I don't know if the Piraeus, the port, suffers more or the city of Athens, but we'll see that there's going to be this flip-flopping pretty regularly. But now we get our first peek at Demetrius's vices, right? We had the list at the beginning, but we really haven't seen any of those yet. But his lust comes front and center where he hears that this famously beautiful woman is available nearby in Patras. I mean, modern Patras is called Patra in the ancient world. It's not that close to Athens. You've got to go all the way past Corinth, and it's currently where the bridge across the Corinthian Gulf is. So we're talking several hundred miles. He brings his tent and he arranges a liaison with this woman, but he puts his tent far off away from all the other soldiers' tents and anybody else who's with him. But that kind of leaves him exposed because his enemies then surround that tent and force him to run away with, in Plutarch's description, very few clothes on. So his appetites, his lust to just have access to this woman made him stop everything he was doing in Athens and immediately take a left turn and then to expose himself very unwisely, very imprudently to almost being captured by his enemies, which is just crazy. But anyway, he returns to focus on Athens after that slight hiccup. He assembles the people in the main city, publicly gives them their cities back, and this is now 14 years before when they had lost their form of government, see the life of Phocian, when the democracy was 
closed off on purpose. The Macedonians said the Athenian democracy should no longer be based on citizenship, birthright citizenship. It should go back to being based on land ownership, and a lot of people lost the vote. But we'll see in this life, okay, we're going back to birthright citizenship. If you are born to Athenian parents, you are an Athenian citizen, even if you don't own a lick of land, any land at all. But the Athenians, a democracy, whose democracy has just been restored, have a very odd reaction, one would think, although I think there's a closer relationship here between kings and democracies. But they offer the title of king to Demetrius and Antigonus. And we should remember that up to this time, king was still reserved for the polite fiction that Philip and Alexander's descendants would be the rulers of Philip of the empire that Philip and Alexander had built. But it gets worse. So they give them the title king. Okay, excessive. A precedent is broken. But king seems rather accurate, right? We're just turning what what was a polite fiction into a polite reality as politely as possible. But then they start to worship them as savior gods, not heroes, gods. And a lot of their civic and religious festivals and calendar are flipped upside down in order to fit Demetrius and Antigonus. Just a couple examples. They weave the images of Demetrius and Antigonus into Athena's sacred robe, the sacred robe that is brought up during the Panathenaic festival to reclothe Athena every few years. Remember that in the life of Pericles, Phidias was imprisoned and killed for the impiety of putting himself and Pericles' likeness onto the shield that Athena carried. Why was that sacrilege and impiety 125 years before, and it's not now? Weird. Very strange. They consecrated an altar at the spot where Demetrius first stepped down from his chariot into Athens. They created two new political tribes, so there's normally 10 tribes in Athens, and so they added 100 members to the boule to represent each new tribe, and named the tribes after Demetrius and Antigonus. Most of the other tribe names were historic and mythical heroes of Athens. So this just has not been done. They're willing to bend and break their own constitution in order to give these guys the kleos they think they deserve. At any rate, Plutarch puts all of this at the feet of one major speaker who is so far removed from what we saw in Phocian that we're all just kind of left shaking our heads. But he wants anyone who goes, is sent from Athens to be, to talk to Antigonus or Demetrius to be treated like a sacred deputy, to be treated in the same way as if he were going to Olympia to consult Zeus or represent Athens at the Olympics, or to Delphi to consult Apollo. Okay, but we do at least start to see divine disapproval. It it gets worse, okay, before it gets better, but we will see some of the divine disapproval that happens right away is that the Dionysia festival and procession have to be canceled due to unseasonably cold weather. And then a heavy frost affects the grape, fig, and grain harvest that year. So Plutarch sees that as mm, divine disapproval. At this point, we haven't heard much mentioned of Demetrius' first wife, but he did have two children by her, including a child who will later succeed him to the Macedonian throne, although after a great deal of uncertainty. So he doesn't know that yet. 
But he also picks up an Athenian wife now, actually a descendant of Miltiades, the Miltiades who had won at Marathon all those two centuries ago. And though the Athenians see it as a compliment, sort of, this whole keeping several wives at the same time is kind of strange. So his first wife, her name is Phila, and she's both the daughter of Antipater and the widow of Craterus. Remember, Craterus was killed in battle by, not by Eumenes, but in the battle against Eumenes. And on top of all this, right, he has two wives, and he still has this reputation as just the worst philanderer of all the successors of Alexander. He continues to see and spend time with any woman who will give him the attention he thinks he deserves. So he's mostly freed Greece. He's mostly set Athens to rights. And then he goes and he conquers Cyprus from Ptolemy. Now that's a strategic island, always will be, always has been. And the fact that he's able to conquer Cyprus is something that wins a lot of fame for him. It's going to allow him and his father, Antigonus, to expand the empire perhaps beyond where it ever was, beyond any of the claims that they've had so far. But it also meant that he it pulled him away from freeing Greece. In this big win, he meets a woman named Lamia. She's first famous for her flute playing and her company, but later for the men she has influence over when she takes them on as lovers. And this is kind of marks the first real permanent turning point for Plutarch, where Demetrius is too addicted to the pleasures the women bring him. And he's really actually confused by Lamia because he says Lamia's older than he is and was kind of past her prime already at this point. So it's weird to see Demetrius losing his head over this woman, but lose his head, he does. So they return, right, to Athens. And now the multitude are regularly greeting Antigonus and Demetrius as kings. Ptolemy is also crowned. And this fiction of a united Alexandrian empire has completely fallen away and the labels match the deeds. This is just kings fighting other kings to enlarge their kingdoms. Lysimachus and Seleucus also wear diadems, the standard symbol of a king. Cassander seems to be the only one who still uses his customary addresses as an officer of Alexander's army. And Plutarch wants us to know that with this change of nomenclature came an increase in the pride and ostentation as to how these men ruled and interacted with each other. So he's going to often use the word now and compare them to tragic actors on the stage. We're all watching a tragedy and you should keep an eye out for the metaphors for tragedy in this life. But one of my favorite things to keep in mind is that the word for tragic actor doesn't quite have the same ring. For us, actor can be neutral or mostly positive, right? We think of the famous actors and actresses we know. But for the Greeks, it began to take on more and more of a pejorative sense as time went by. Because the word for an actor is a hypocrites which is someone who is interpreting 
underneath a mask, right? Hupo means under. And krites comes from the verb krino, to judge or interpret or discern. But these, these interpreters underneath the mask are also where we get the word hypocrite. And so it's Plutarch and Plato are some of the first ones who start to say this fakeness, right? This pretending is teaching people to pretend to virtue, to fake all so many things that they don't have. And then it gives even more power to their flatterers because everything they do and say will be treated as if they are a god, right? I mean, we're, we're already lying to these men and calling them gods, uh, which the pagans had standards, right? There wasn't, <laughs> there wasn't just anybody who could be a god ever as long as you were pretty cool and somewhat powerful. I do want to take a brief pause right here in the show to let you know that season four of the Plutarch podcast is brought to you by the support of Hackett Publishing. This small independent publisher has been serving the humanities since 1972 with affordable translations in everything from Homer to Dante. They've generously offered listeners of this podcast 20% off any title in their catalog and free shipping in the U.S. and Canada. With the coupon code Plutarch, you could add Stanley Lombardo's translation of the Iliad or the Odyssey to your library. You could get the complete works of Plato in a beautiful hardcover, or you could enjoy Shakespeare's Julius Caesar or Antony and Cleopatra. For the last two years, I've used Jan Blitz's notes on Julius Caesar to prepare my own students for the Roman context and background on Shakespeare's masterpiece. Really, that play is worth getting just for the introductory matter and the notes. Just go to hacketpublishing.com today and enter the coupon code Plutarch for 20% off and free shipping. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. But for now, we'll go back to the show. But we now have this weird, right, in all of this father-son relationship, Antigonus has never really been bothered by Demetrius's excesses. He's aware of them, as a father is, but it seems he himself has grown large in his old age. By 306, as he heads out towards, uh, towards the last battle of his life, he's 80 years old, but he's also so big, it makes the expeditions, expeditions difficult. He's 80 years old and corpulent, which is a polite way of saying rather fat. But Cassander hasn't let go of Athens quite yet. And so he's started a siege on Athens while Demetrius was out. Demetrius had been sacking Rhodes, actually another strategic island. And Demetrius has to sail back with 330 ships, more ships than he even came with the first time, and drives Cassander out up as far as Thermopylae and adds Macedonians to his army as he works his way up the coast. So now the Athenians have not only been told that they are free, but Demetrius has acted on that action and they are elated. The Athenians actually give him the back of the Parthenon as a personal apartment now. So now he lives on the Acropolis and there's basically three parts to a temple. And uh, you can still see this when you see the Parthenon or go to the Parthenon Museum in Athens to this day. The altar would have been outside for all the blood sacrifice. Then you had the pronaos. Then you had the naos itself, right? So the pronaos is the, the area maybe where people could mill about and you could peek in to see the actual room with the goddess in it. That's the naos, right? But then there was a section of the temple called the opistodomos. 
and it was walled off from the actual room with the cult statue and it faced the opposite direction of the temple obviously opisto means backwards right so it it ran in the opposite direction and was just maybe a storage room storage area i'm not sure we exactly know what the epistodomos was used for and it may have had a use at one time but they were obviously able to clean it out and put demetrius's apartments in that section of the parthenon temple so he kind of shares a wall with the the room that has the big statue of athena in it the chris elephantine statue from um, the life of pericles that we heard about that phidias made so he is now housemates or flatmates or something right roommates or next door neighbor of athena herself and this Plutarch can't handle it all. I mean, we're we're giving a mortal man access to a temple, and not just any temple, a temple named the Parthenon, because Parthenos means virgin in Greek, and the temple itself is dedicated to a virgin goddess. This guy is not known for his self-control, and he disgraces Athens inside of the very temple of athena that is most sacred to them but they don't seem to notice or care they're under the illusion that whatever king demetrius says will be regarded as holy towards the gods and just before men and plutarch points out that they now seem to have confused being without a garrison as the same thing as being free as they like willingly give more and more religious and political power to Demetrius. They don't seem to be too worried about that. So at this point, Demetrius wants to use Athens as a base to continue to free the rest of Greece. He declares the Peloponnesus free in 303 BC, but he's not, uh, he's not doing it in the most strategic ways. He's mostly paying off their garrisons, bringing them over to his side, but for how long? Well, until someone with more gold comes by, right? Or scaring them away with a larger force that comes up to threaten. And at this point, he also enters his third marriage, in spite of both of his other wives being alive, which Plutarch specifically mentions, and presides over a festival of Hera at Argos. So his third wife is Deidemia, who's actually a sister of Pyrrhus. So he's now related by marriage to several different successors of Alexander. And sometimes he's marrying their widows, right? And the successors of Alexander die pretty quickly in these first uh, generation of wars that we have. But anyway, this is his third wife. And at the Isthmus of Corinth, and Corinth is the place you generally gather all the Greeks, all the way going all the way back to Philip at least. It's the place you gather all the Greeks in order to declare yourself commander in chief. And Demetrius is now there, standing in the exact place that Philip and Alexander were, were declared to be the same thing the commander in chief of all the Greeks. And at this point, Demetrius now sits in this position of Philip and Alexander and sees himself worthy, fit to mock the other kings. And he allows his toadies and sycophants and flatterers to surround him and call the other kings, well, Seleucus, who's 
empire now is most of the eastern part of Alexander's empire. Well, let's let's just call him the master of elephants. Let's call Ptolemy the admiral. He always has the ships. He mostly just has Egypt. But his navy is so large, we'll call him the admiral. Lysimachus, who controls Central Asia Minor, which is where a lot of the money was deposited from Alexander's campaigns, we'll call him the treasurer. And Agathocles, the rising tyrant in Syracuse, yes, Syracuse has now returned to tyrants, we'll call him Lord of the Islands. The other kings laugh when they hear this, uh, for the most part, but it's Lysimachus that responds poorly and now is out for revenge with Demetrius. But Demetrius has a few more things to check off before he leaves Greece to perhaps expand his empire and increase his prestige. The first is he wants to be in uh he wants to be initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries. But that takes time. You actually in order to get all the way to the deepest level of the mysteries, you've got to wait through several seasons usually. This after all is the goddess of the seasons. It's uh, related to Demeter, after whom Demetrius is named, okay, the mother goddess of spring, who loses Proserpina or Persephone, depending on whether you want her Latin or her Greek name, and then gets her back. And so it's a mystery cult we know related to death and rebirth, related probably to the afterlife, to give you an assurance of that. There's three levels, Plutarch tells us, and he wants to receive all of them at once. And in order to make this possible, Stratocles, that Athenian who was willing to do anything to impress Demetrius, changes the names of the months so that it seems like Demetrius is receiving the proper rites at the proper times. The poets pretty mercilessly mock Stratocles for this. And the Athenians begin to get over their drunken love of Demetrius when he once asks them for 250 talents. Remember, a talent was usually enough to build a warship. And so for one city to come up with this much money is asking a lot. And apparently, when he's given the 250 talents from the Athenians, how does he spend it? He spends it on his concubine, Lamia, for soap. I'm trying to imagine how many truckloads of soap that really is. But the Athenians at this point want to melt with shame and they start to refer to Lamia herself as a monster. This is kind of where Plutarch at this point goes on and on saying, basically agreeing that she's a monster, but also confused as to how this monster has so much control over Demetrius's life choices. So we're now approaching the Battle of Ipsus. If you study the the Macedonian successors of Alexander, the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC is really the final watershed moment where you get the empire in semi-permanent positions where Seleucus will control the east, Ptolemy will keep everything in Egypt, and then we'll have a few successors still vying for the Asia Minor Greece area after this, but it really does solidify some of the boundaries for some of the most important successors. But Demetrius and Antigonus are now going to this battle 
And Demetrius fights extremely well in the Battle of Ipsus. He leads the cavalry against the son of Seleucus, but he pursues so fiercely that he doesn't come back to his father. And so in the end, with this great relationship between Antigonus and Demetrius, it kind of ends tragically because Antigonus is so confident at 84 years old that Demetrius will come back to his aid with his horses and cavalry, and he doesn't. And Antigonus falls where he is in a cloud of javelins, pretty much abandoned by almost all his friends and attendants. So at this, with Antigonus dead and Demetrius kind of on the run, he can come back from the battle, but where's he going to return to? The uh, successors of Alexander kind of cut up the remains of Antigonus and Demetrius's empire for themselves. So he thinks, hmm, where could I go back to? Where can I go back to? Athens! Athens loves me. The Athenians love me. So he's sailing back to Athens, and an embassy meets him on the islands outside of the Athenian harbor, the Saronic Gulf even. And they said, well, we don't mean anything personal, Demetrius, but we just kind of want to stay out of all these major battles between the kings. And so we've passed a law that none of the kings will be welcome in Athens. And so, you know, it's equal. It's just because we don't want any of you at all. So nothing, nothing personal. As a matter of fact, your third wife who was staying with us, we, uh, we sent her to Megara. So, you know, she's just in the neighboring city and she's fine. But here's where Demetrius, I think kind of rightfully, grows incensed with wrath. It was, after all, that painful to be let down by the Athenians. They had, just a few years before this, been declaring everything you said to be an oracle. They declared you a god. They reconstituted their calendar and rearranged their political organizations because you were so awesome. And then... When you lose what everyone sees, even at the time, as a very important battle, the Athenians have no interest in helping you out. And this is the proof that the real goodwill of a king is not, should not ever be based on fear or honor, because whatever can be bestowed by someone else, the honor, can also be taken away. And the Athenians no longer honor Demetrius. So he does ask for his ships back, which he receives. So he gets a navy. And his garrisons had been expelled wherever he had put them in the Peloponnesus. He goes to attack the Lysimachus, the one who hates him, and finds himself making more proposals to dig himself out. So he's kind of like a business owner who's lost his first business, declared bankruptcy, but still has all his skills with him, right? Tomorrow is another day, as Scarlett O'Hara might say. And he's going to find a way to claw himself back up to the top. But right now, he has almost nothing. Even Athens rejected him. He's got a navy. Some of his wives might be okay, wherever they are. But he needs to find allies quick. And Seleucus, the same Seleucus whom he had lost to in battle even though his part of the battle kind of went well, is now offering him one of his daughters in marriage. Now, this may have been to balance Ptolemy, 
who had offered one of his daughters to Lysimachus. So you have these continuing marital alliances, which again, don't seem really as strong as they used to be. But the other thing he's able to do is go to that city where a lot of the a lot of the treasure had been deposited from Alexander's conquests. And there, Demetrius arrives with an army, which means nobody bothers him, who doesn't have a larger army, and finds 1,200 talents. Well, that's good. He had a, mil- he had a navy. He had some of his mercenaries, but now he's also got money. He's putting the pieces together to come back in action. And Demetrius now conquers a section of and carves out a southwestern section of Turkey for himself, which is bordering on Seleucus's land. So he went from being a potential ally who had nothing and Seleucus could do him a favor to being a potential threat now that he's on the border instead of Lysimachus or Cassander. So he sends Phila, his first wife, who is Cassander's sister, to Cassander to help negotiate there. And then Deidemia, who had been in Megara, she meets up with Demetrius, but then dies shortly thereafter. And so now he agrees to marry a daughter of Ptolemy who would have been his fifth wife, right? Or will be his fifth wife. Yeah, he agrees to marry her. And her name is Ptolemaeus. So yeah. But because he's already agreed to marry Lanasa, this woman that Seleucus is offering him, he casually asked Demetrius, kind of as a bride price, hey, you want to give me Cilicia, this this neighboring area that you just conquered? And it's right on the border of my empire. It'd make it slightly bigger. You know, it'd be a nice favor to do for me. But there are limits to these kings asking each other for favors. And Demetrius refuses. And Seleucus actually doubles down and asks for even more. And so... The bad blood gets worse really quickly. But here, Plutarch takes the time to quote Plato, right? Pointing out that each of these men not only are at the top of their game, but are the wealthiest men in the Eastern Mediterranean, probably in a long time, if not in almost ever. And yet, they're greedy. They're still greedy. Plato tells us that the man who would be truly rich is not the man who's able to make his possessions greater, but to make his desires fewer. There is no end to greed, and poverty and want will always be nearby. Speaking of poverty and want, Demetrius now declares that even if he'd lost 10,000 battles of Ipsus, he would not pay, he would not give Cilicia over so that he could marry Seleucus's daughter. So he fortifies his positions in, uh, in Cilicia, but then he hears of dissent in Athens. And so he leaves, again, flip-flopping, flip-flop. He leaves everything he was doing to resist Seleucus, and he really wants to punish Athens in a war that Plutarch really just calls petty. He ravages the countryside, seizes the grain, and basically causes a famine in the city. Ptolemy sends them aid, but not enough ships because Demetrius outnumbers him two to one and the navy doesn't even engage. So they do find a way, the Athenians, to appease Demetrius and they open their gates to him. But we hear all kinds of crazy stories during the famine uh, because Epicurus was in the city. Epicurus, the founder of the Epicureans, who was alive at this time, 
was famously counting out beans to keep himself and his followers alive. A father and son fight over eating a dead mouse that that falls from the ceiling. Uh, But as soon as he does lift the stage, he calls everyone to the theater. There's that tragic actor scene. Enters the main stage from the same place that the tragic actors come out on the stage. And actually immediately gives them 100,000 bushels of grain. So instantly he removes the famine and any threat it was to their safety. But this is where he gets... He's started to bounce around like a pinball, and right before he loses, we're just going to see a number of crazy bounces. He's called in to help with Macedonian succession because Cassander dies, but then the brothers, Cassander dies, then Philip dies, and the brothers, Antipater and Alexander, fight for the throne, calling on whoever's going to help them. Antipater murdered his mother, so there's that theme. And Alexander is the one that calls on both Pyrrhus and Demetrius for help. Pyrrhus comes immediately, Demetrius comes later. But Demetrius ends up getting the throne because he wines and dines Alexander until he finds the right opportunity or moment to poison him at dinner. They're worried about this, so they're like bringing their own food and whining and dining each other. Until Demetrius figures out a way that doesn't even involve poison. Where he says, he tells his guards, after I walk out of the room, kill the man who comes immediately after me. And his guards do it. And kill Alexander and all of his friends. Who is the last king of Macedon. Or the last person standing in the way of the Macedonian throne. For Demetrius. And one friend of Alexander's, even as he dies, says oh yeah, we were planning to do this same thing to Demetrius tomorrow. So there it is. That's Macedonian politics for you, right? This throws Macedonia into an uproar. They're confused. But since no one else was dead by morning, that is to say there was not a bloodbath, they agreed to meet with Demetrius and declare him king of Macedon in 294. But now it's him and Pyrrhus in the same section and really... Greece and Macedonia are not big enough for the two of them. Demetrius conquers Thessaly and then starts to surround Boeotia, and he actually conquers Thebes twice. So again, Thebes has really gotten it rough, and Thebes gets burned down again and besieged in 293. But Pyrrhus is also moving from the east. We'll learn that, uh, sorry, from the west. Pyrrhus comes from the west, We'll see that Epirus is in like northwestern Greece. And he takes over Thessaly and part of Thermopylae. And so they're kind of fighting wherever they aren't, wherever the other one isn't. Pyrrhus will invade and take an area. And then Demetrius will have to come back into that area and take it. And so Thebes had been restored in 315 by Cassander after it was totally destroyed by Alexander in 335, remember? But had already been captured twice since this re-establishment. Poor Thebes cannot get a single generation where it will be left alone. But now it's definitely Pyrrhus versus Demetrius. Demetrius plunders Epirus. He literally invades Pyrrhus's main territory while Pyrrhus is out taking over the, the Greek garrisons or the Macedonian garrisons in the Greek cities and fighting a battle against Demetrius's second in command. So 
It's really funny. But he's not going to remain Macedonian king for long. And he's not even a very good king. Plutarch makes the point that he insults and offends his subjects primarily because of his inaccessibility and haughtiness. One woman rebukes him when he says he doesn't have time. She tells him, well, then you don't have time to be king. And he were, and it, that particular insult worked, and he came back and listened to the woman's complaints and helped her out, but it was only a temporary change. And so Plutarch uses this moment to remind us that nothing fits a king so well as justice. Reminds us of the life of Agesilaus, or so many other things. And Pindar reminds us that law is actually the king of everything, not kings are the king of everything, right? Law is not the same thing as the will of the king. Homer speaks of kings receiving justice from Zeus, especially in the symbol of that scepter that Achilles swears on and then that in book two, Odysseus beats Thersites with. Recall those images from the Iliad because that scepter comes straight from Zeus and represents Zeus-like power, but also Zeus-like justice. You can also think of the opening of the Iliad. When Zeus complains that human beings will blame the gods when so much of the Sufferings are self-imposed, self-caused. But Demetrius really delights in some of the titles he's earned. So since he sacked Rhodes and took on Cyprus, he's been called City Sacker. But Plutarch points out that Demetrius' nickname, City Sacker, is the opposite of the ones given to Zeus. Zeus is often called City Protector or City Guardian. So power, this is Plutarch words, power devoid of wisdom advances evil to take the place of good and makes injustice a co-dweller with fame. Man. But now Demetrius sets out on his largest experiment yet. After falling sick and almost losing Macedonia to Pyrrhus while he was sick, he recovers, drives Pyrrhus out, and decides, okay, I'm going to take over the same realm that my father had ruled over at its largest. And here we have the biggest navy mentioned so far, he's going to get together 500 ships. He even makes one ship with 14 banks of oars. 14 banks. That's 14 decks of oars. I don't even know where all these people sit. That, Plutarch claims, was not just for show, like Ptolemy had made one with 40 banks of oars that was totally useless in war, but was actually speedy and effective. That sounds like a floating city i mean a floating stoa at least anyway but it's really hard to prepare a navy of 500 ships and do build boats this to this level of 14 decks of oarsmen and not have everybody notice and so seleucus ptolemy lysimachus essentially everybody that's still alive they contact pyrrhus and they're like okay we all need to join forces and we need to resist demetrius demetrius's soldiers also look at pyrrhus and think hmm Pyrrhus seems a little bit more Alexandrian than Alexander. He is actually related to Alexander. I think he's Alexander's second cousin, but we'll cover that more in Pyrrhus's life. But more than that, Pyrrhus isn't a hypocrites, right? A hypocrite, an actor. He says what he does and he does what he says. So as soon as Pyrrhus enters, he brings order and discipline everywhere he goes. So much so that Demetrius' soldiers even warn him. 
uh, hey, we're all defecting to Pyrrhus, and some of us like you enough that we don't want the soldiers to kill you, but because we now want Pyrrhus as our general, we don't want you, so run away. And so Demetrius does that. He changes his clothes into simpler, darker attire and leaves under the cover of darkness, dressed like a tragic actor. So Demetrius ruled Macedonia for seven years and then, in the end, let it be divided between Lysimachus and Pyrrhus. He flees to a city named after Cassander, which is odd because you'd think you'd flee to a city named after yourself, but Cassander had conquered Potidaea and renamed it. And then his first wife, Phila, kills herself in despair. So I think he's two wives down now by my math, but man, it's hard to keep track of. And his fate now is changing like the moon. I gave a pinball analogy. Plutarch's is a little more elegant there with the moon. From private citizen to king to private citizen and back again, right? He just always finds some way of flipping it over. Eurydice, his second wife, is still around and brings him one of the women betrothed to him, Ptolemaeus, his fifth wife. Demetrius now marries her, strangely, and attacks cities in Asia Minor. But he's kind of attacking anywhere he can get an opportunity, and he feels like someone clawing on the edge of a sandpit to try to get himself alive, to keep himself alive. He heads for Armenia to take to take people by surprise, get a larger piece of the pie. Maybe he wants all of Asia Minor. But he's pushed back to the coast at Tarsus, very close to Cilicia, where he was before. And all of this just feels like a weird sort of deja vu. Seleucus is marching against him and surprises Demetrius, who hides up in the mountains. But even here, backed into a corner, Demetrius manages to fight his way out and turn the tables on Seleucus. You thought, oh, this will surely be the end, right? Because Seleucus had refused to allow Lysimachus to come help. These kings don't trust each other. And at this point, Demetrius uses that to his advantage. But as soon as Demetrius gets the advantage, he falls sick himself for 40 days. And so he has to pretend to fall back into Asia Minor, away from Seleucus's lands. But he actually plunders some of Seleucus's territory. But the typical problem comes up. Seleucus and Demetrius are fighting, and Demetrius's men switch sides. Just like they did for Pyrrhus, they now hail Seleucus as their king, and Demetrius has to flee the battle and run into the forest to hide for the night. This is not the only Plutarch's life where we are going to see men hiding in rough straits who once were masters of their fate and the fate of so many other tens of thousands of lives. But the men who are with him realize they don't even have enough food to last a day. So what are their options? Well, Demetrius almost kills himself, but his friends do manage to stop him from that. And Seleucus realizes he now has an enemy in his hands and the opportunity to show him generosity. He might look back to the way that Antipater had treated Eumenes and think, we shouldn't do that again. He sets up a royal tent to receive Demetrius And everyone flocks to meet Demetrius. And now you see maybe why Antipater had treated Eumenes that way. Because Seleucus' pity quickly changes into jealousy, and he now gives him 
a force of a thousand soldiers to surround him and under armed escort returns him to Seleucus. This armed escort makes Demetrius a great deal harder to just go see. Then we see that uh, how that works. Now, we should remember that Demetrius is related to Seleucus by marriage. Okay, Demetrius's daughter had married Antiochus, Seleucus's son. Through a long story in the middle of this life, actually, that woman had originally been married to Seleucus himself, and then Seleucus gave one of his wives to his son Antiochus. It was awkward, and I'll just let you read about it yourself. But the uh, it has some famous paintings associated with it that I'll also put in the show notes. But word now spreads of Demetrius's captivity. He tells his son, Antigonus, to mourn him as if he were already dead. And Lysimachus wants to try to pay Seleucus to kill him, but this just makes Seleucus mistrust him even more. So that, uh, yeah, that doesn't work out very well. But Demetrius is now essentially like a prisoner of war and has not very many options for what he can do with his time. So while he starts off hunting and riding, staying fit, right, doing the kingly activities that one ought to do as a king or as a former king, after a time, he just falls into drinking and dice. And so he seeks escape when he's sober, that's gambling, or smothers his thoughts in forgetfulness, that's drinking. And so he falls sick after three years in captivity and dies at the age of 55, much younger than his father had been. And even there's dramatic and theatrical flair in his funeral. His remains were transferred in a golden urn and met by his son who decorated them with a crown and purple robe and had the flute players playing as it entered the harbor at Corinth, surrounded by its own bodyguard. And Antigonus bowed down in grief, brought his his father's ashes to their final resting place in a city named after himself, Demetrius. And he was buried there. There are some lessons that we have from Demetrius's situation. I think the two primary ones that we want to keep in mind are the philanthropos, right? That real natural kindness for his fellow man. How does he keep that? And when does he lose it? And justice. The justice towards his fellow man, the understanding of what each man was owed, who was owed his time, who was owed his attention, who was owed his thoughts. And if they weren't owed those things, why not? And I think Plutarch wants us to see his luxury, his softness, um, wasn't just a physical manifestation of the fact that he was lustful. It was a luxury and a softness in his approach to almost everything because there would come a point, not, not that he wasn't great in battle. He actually, Plutarch specifically says, he's great in battle. He's great in sieges. He manages to give up alcohol for months at a time when prosecuting a siege. But given attempting enough opportunity, he leaves, which means he has a price. So what is your price? What is your limit? How much do we 
deny ourselves so that we can grow our characters strong enough to say no at the most tempting moments when it seems like it would be easier to give up and bounce on to the next thing. What's really worth doing and continuing with? But I'll leave us with that thought as we continue to read The Lives of Plutarch, get close to the end of uh, Season 5 here. We'll get to Pyrrhus next month, and we'll see what it's like to win the battles and not win the war. But I hope, in the meantime, I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives influence yours. Yours.